Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Hello and welcome back to the podcast that is always up to speed with Formula One. It is Sunday, no, it's Monday night, Mark and Mark back to talk about Formula One. And guys, I apologize. We were supposed to be doing this about 24 hours ago, but full disclosure, I was on the road all weekend and I got home after like this 400 mile trip home last night and I was just absolutely dead. So this one's on me, but better late than never because, hey, you know what? When you guys hit that sub button, you guys automatically consented to getting two doses of Mark Daly and Mark Hamilton every week. So that's on you. But the the timing, that's on us, specifically on me. But all good, Mr. Hamilton. I'm uh, doing fantastic. Sir. I was very disappointed we couldn't record last night, but uh, oh, me too. I, I get it. You know, life sometimes uh, gets in the way and we've been having such a, a warm, blisteringly hot summer. I think people would excuse us if we wanted to uh, enjoy our weekend <laughs> once in a while, right? And, and obviously, we have a ton of great news to get into tonight. But I think before we yes. do that, we should probably recap the the second half of the Austrian doubleheader. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, that was a very interesting race. And, you know, I, I don't want to hate on the Red Bull ring too much. But I can honestly say after four races there in 12 months... I'm good to let it go off the calendar for 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 the time being, but uh, you know they they have done a phenomenal job to fill in. It's just that when you get these back to back weekends, it's just uh, what's that old old saying about uh, too much of a good thing. Uh, but yeah, I mean it was interesting. I, I mean basically when it came down to it, it was the perfect weekend uh, for for Max Verstappen pole race victory and fastest lap. And uh, well, I mean, if you look at the driver standings, 182 points for Max, 150 for Lewis, who didn't have a great uh, race afternoon, but obviously he had some damage to the car, which compromised uh, the speed in his car. And then when you look at the uh, at the constructors, it's starting to it's starting to get away from Red Bull a little bit now, or sorry, from uh, Mercedes a little bit, because Red Bull 286 point, Mercedes 242 points. And then, well, it's a long way back to McLaren uh, in, in third place in the constructors, but it's just all going well for, for, for Red Bull at the moment. Mark, what were your takeaways from, from the race uh, for, for Max and then for Yeah, Mercedes? I absolutely do not want to let this get away from me, and I don't want to get overly excited, and I don't want to short sell people on the competitiveness of the championship that we still have yet to witness. But at this point, I, I have to be very clear, Max and Red Bull are facing zero pressure in terms of race starts, in terms of qualifying, in terms of race strategy, in terms of race, in terms of upgrades to the car. They are facing absolutely zero friction from the rest of the grid, and they're facing Mm -hmm. zero challenge. Max is in a fantastic position. And my thought really is this, that ever since Max won that race in Spain back in 2016 after the double Mercedes DNF, the question has always been not whether... He was going to become a champion, 
but rather when was Red Bull going to get a package that would enable him to unlock his potential? And we've seen flashes, we've seen flurry, but to put this into context, this is a guy that has now won 10 Grand Prix in his career. Four of them are from this year. Five of them are from this year. He has 50 podiums (laughs) despite his young age. He has seven poles. He's just stacking up records after records. And even last year when he had a good car and a good package, there were reliability issues. And it seems like between Honda and Red Bull, they've ironed out those gremlins. And of course, there's still been a little bit of bad luck that that issue in Baku was terrible. Um, obviously, that wasn't necessarily yeah. a mechanical or reliability issue from a Red Bull perspective, but everything seems to be clicking and they just seem to be this unbelievable force. And one of the comments that I heard a lot about this race weekend was, well, we didn't really see a lot of Max on the TV broadcast. But there was no reason to no, show we him. Didn't. When you're 5, 10, 15, 20, <laughs> 30 seconds ahead of the rest of the field, there's no value in showing you to the television audience. You want to see some of those midfield battles. You want to see the, the drivers fighting for that podium. But absolutely, from a Red Bull perspective, from a Max Verstappen perspective, there's absolutely zero, zero, zero pressure. And one of the comments that you and I had made last week was, we probably weren't expecting to see something different this weekend versus the prior weekend. Obviously, this is a track that is Red Bull owned. They know it inside out. It's almost tailored for their cars in a lot of ways. And I think our message for the audience was, don't be shocked if we see more of the same. And if you're a Mercedes fan, Mm -hmm. don't panic. Ultimately, the, the litmus test is going to be Silverstone next weekend, which is really Mercedes home track where they've dominated. They've dominated the entire uh, hybrid era with the exception of 2018 when Vettel won because Hamilton had contact with Raikkonen in the first lap. But ultimately, (laughs) they look, and I don't want to say this, they look unstoppable. Their pace, their race strategy, everything. Yeah, that uh, package of Max Verstappen, the Red Bull and the Honda, it really is the complete package at the moment. And it it really is interesting because you really made a a good point just now that it was last year. What did he have? Six DNF, seven DNF. I mean, he basically didn't finish, what, a third of the season? When you look at it, because we had, what, 17 races in 2020 in the pandemic shortened year. So it was uh, pretty significant. But also to your point about uh, not showing Max on the TV, why would you show Max, give him the screen time when your teammate is is the one that's making all the news for pretty much all the wrong reasons uh, yesterday. That's what you call a segue. Wow. Exactly. But before we do that, no, that's that's going to be a tease because uh, before we do, we should just maybe just uh, go over the, well, for the, the, the three people out there on planet Earth that hasn't uh, followed the race uh, by now. But anyways, we'll just go down the top 10 uh, point pain positions. So Max uh, winning the race, Valtteri Bottas getting a little bit of a redemption, uh, getting the chance to actually overtake his teammate who was obviously struggling. Uh, Bottas coming home second. Lando Norris making a habit of getting on the podium in Austria, coming home peak. Three, Lewis Hamilton P4, Carlos Sainz, good finish for Sainz, uh, pitted at right, the opportune moment to go back onto the mediums. He was uh, fifth, Sergio Perez, six, which considering all the drama that he got involved in and all the penalties that he stacked up, came home in six, which, you know, when you thought about it earlier in the race, I, I was kind of thinking, uh, especially after those two penalties, was Sergio even going to finish in top 10? Anyways, P7 for Danny Ricardo in the second McLaren, Charles Leclerc, P8, Pierre Gasly in, uh, in P9, and then Fernando Alonso coming home in P10. So there you go. 
And yes, the segue. We have to talk about this. We would be derelict of our duty if we did not uh, talk about this. But the penalties, not only did they double down, they tripled down, they quadrupled down on those penalties in turn four and then I guess in turn six. And Juan Pablo Montoya former Formula One driver and, uh, well, I mean, he's basically raced in everything. He says it's crazy to penalize F1 drivers for defending outside moves. I have to agree completely with JPM. How do you give a guy a a car's width on the outside of the track, which is what uh, race director Michael Massey stuck by? That's they're they're digging in their heels. They're going to this is the hill that the FIA and the race director have decided to die on. This is this is their last stand is that you have to give one car width on the you know to the car that's trying to pass you which you know fair enough in theory but when you're going downhill and you're going to the outside gravity and speed is momentum is pulling you to the outside how do you do that in in reality especially that second Sergio Perez incident when in turn six I believe it was where he's going down the hill after you go one left and then a second left going down the hill very very quick I can't remember what it is maybe 170 miles an hour even during the broadcast, Crofty uh, basically said something to the effect, this isn't going to end well because this is somewhere where you do not uh, overtake Charles Leclerc. And of course, he goes off onto the gravel. I thought that those ones were <clears throat> silly. I didn't think that uh, that Lando deserved them. I thought that, you know, they, they've set the precedent. They set the precedent in years gone by with uh, Lewis Hamilton and Alex Albon. But I don't know. I, I mean... I like to see good, hard racing at the end of the day. It wasn't dangerous. And I think that if you go to try and pass people on the outside that, you know, you're almost trying to, you're trying to game the system. That's kind of what I think. This is one of those never ending conversations in debates in Formula One. And it's really about the role of the FIA and whether a penalty is, is, is on merit. So I, I, maybe I should back this up. And I, I'm kind of curious about your perspective too. I want to promote racing and I want to promote safe mm-hmm. racing. And I don't want to discourage Agreed. drivers from attempting overtake. So to me, and I've read both sides of the argument. If you dig into Reddit, if you dig into Twitter, there seems to be a camp that's firmly entrenched in the sense that those penalties were warranted. And then there's a bigger camp that seems to say, hey, those are racing incidents. And in the heat of the mm-hmm. moment, I was very much, those are racing incidents. This is good. This is good, hard, Same. feel the wheel racing. It's what we all want. It's what we've all been dying for for years and years. And for the FIA to inject themselves into the conversation, the outcome of the race, once again, it's it's unnecessary. Mm-hmm. I think now two days out, like having had time to sit back and reflect on this, my opinion hasn't necessarily changed that, you know what, if I'm going to make that that maneuver, ultimately there's going to be risk, especially to your point, when it's a high-speed corner, it's it's on a downward trajectory and there's gravel on the shoulder. Like, you know what, make that move, but if there's contact, that's on you. There shouldn't be a penalty imposed on the driver who's trying to defend their racing line. So to me, it kind of builds on the conversation that we were having last week. And the conversation that we were having last week was, it seems as though the FIA is injecting themselves into the championship. So they're not here necessarily to moderate. And again, this is perception. This hasn't been confirmed and nobody from the FIA has come 
come out with a statement saying this is what we're doing, but the perceptions continuing to grow that they're injecting themselves into the sport, not to moderate safety, but to moderate and influence the championship. And we talked about that last week and a ton of people reached out and they said, that's absolutely what's happening. The FIA is hinting at it in their statements. And then when you had a race like this, where there were so many penalties given out and there's so many memes <laughs> as a byproduct, it doesn't look good. And to me, th those, those shoulder incidents, when you're trying to overtake on the outside, that as a driver, I'm going to attempt that overtake. It's a downward trajectory. It's a high-speed corner, and there's gravel. I assume that risk. I assume the risk that that overtaking lane is going to vanish for a variety of different reasons. That's not on the driver that's trying to defend their racing line. Those, to me, weren't flagrant moves, and they certainly didn't deserve a penalty. So I think the frustration's yeah. building a little bit that the FIA is now so clearly influencing the championship. And again, we've forgotten about this because we talked about it two weeks ago, but we're only now two weeks out from the Hungarian Grand Prix where we're going to see entirely new dimensions of, of uh, officiating on the pit stops. It's a very peculiar place to be from a, an FIA perspective so far this championship. Yeah, I don't disagree with anything that uh, that you say, and uh, I, I completely agree with you. I mean, I guess where you could maybe argue that the one of those penalties for Sergio Perez was warranted was the, the first one going into turn four because they're going down that straight. Charles obviously is getting the benefit of the pull from the DRS. Sergio pulls over to the inside of the track, so he leaves the door open in that instance for, for, for Charles to go around on the outside. And he is slightly in front, but you know, I, I agree. I think if you try to overtake somebody on the outside of the track, especially in a, a condition like that, where you like we've just been uh, describing, where you're going downhill, where the momentum, where gravity, everything is pulling you to exact the outside. It's exactly. Just, I, 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 it's like unless you can bend the laws of physics in under half a second or whatever it is, it's how do you really practically do that? I mean, some of the other penalties out there, like the dual penalties for Yuki Sonoda and going over the white sure. line, going into the pit entry, that's a no-brainer because the rule states on the pit entry and the pit exit, you have to keep the car 100% between the two white lines because it's a safety thing. So that's totally on him. But some of these other incidents, yeah, they, they you know, just like you said, with the benefit of basically two days behind us now to sit back and reflect and digest this one and let it sort of really simmer and stew and uh, fester a little bit is probably the better uh, description. It, it just does not sit well with me. And I do not like the the almost overt hand of the FIA at play now because, well, let, let's be clear. I mean, it, in this case, it didn't benefit or really make an outcome for the for the race victory. I mean, Max was miles and miles up the uh, up the road there, but I, I, I really don't like how overt it is becoming. And I, I just don't like it because the next thing people stay, start saying, oh, yeah, well, now it's starting to resemble boxing and like, uh, you know, in years gone by how corrupt boxing was, uh, you know, supposed to be back in the day. Right. And I think that the the FIA and Formula One really needs to check themselves. I think they're walking a very, very thin line. And perception wise, I think they really need to um, to, to do something and, and just sit back and like we said i think last week on 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 thursday's show that they really just need to to be there as a regulator and really make sure that they're enforcing the rules as they pertain to to, to safety and maybe close any loopholes but 
it seems that some of these technical directives and some of these uh, penalties, especially that we've seen in the racing, seem a little bit of an overreach Absolutely. to me. One of the names I think we've probably heard far too much this year is Michael Massey. I think we've probably brought him up on <laughs> each of the last four or five podcasts. And we yeah. shouldn't be talking about Michael Massey. Like, this is what I'm talking about in the sense that the FIA is finding ways to inject itself into the championship. And Obviously, despite yeah. all the criticism of the last two or three or four weeks, especially the ocean and the torrent of criticism that came towards the FIA and Formula One after this race weekend, F1 race director Michael Massey is completely unmoved by the criticism. And the FIA, to your earlier point, have absolutely dug their heels in on this one and believe that the absolute torrent of penalties was justified and warranted. And from their perspective, their thought process is very much that the key factor here is that the driver on the inside, so Norris in the first incident, Perez in the subsequent incidents, had not left a mandatory car with on the outside of the exit lane as they should have done so that the rival mm-hmm. could have been fully alongside. But the reality to your point is if the FIA wants to judge this from a top-down video game type view, I, I get it, but you have to account for all of the different elements here, that this isn't a traditional corner. These aren't traditional corners. This is a track that has elevation unlike any other circuit in formula one and to your perspective if you're the car that is defending the race line and you're going through a sharp downward turn all the forces on your car are going to pull you to the outside of the track and again i get it you can you can predict and you can adjust accordingly but you don't understand what those forces are going to be like lap to lap and based on different tire conditions and again i'm not suggesting that those drivers weren't entirely not at fault but if you're going to attempt to overtake in a really vulnerable position of the track especially if there's gravel on the outside which tends to suck cars in Mm -hmm. on this track you assume some degree of risk. And I don't like the fact that these cars were able to lunge in knowing it was a risky move and then benefit from the fact that the other driver picks up a penalty. And the other thing too, and I I know we want to move on to some other topics as well, is the Norris penalty to me was a bit of a shock, but just as much as it was a shock, Mm -hmm. the fact that it took 20 laps for the FIA to call that penalty just just seemed very, very sour to me as well. Because if you're going to call it, there's the potential that it changes your strategy and the approach to the race. It shouldn't take 30 minutes for the FIA to determine that there's going to be a penalty. Yeah, absolutely. Because when those two incidents with Sergio came about later in the race, I mean, the the um, the judgment, the penalty, it was handed out absolutely. almost instantaneously, absolutely. especially the second one for Sergio. I mean, the, the, the precedent had been set by that point, and it was pretty clear that Anything like that was going to be or would result in a penalty at the end. Anyways, uh, we're late for a break here, Mark. When we come back, we're going to talk about penalties. There's a couple more things that I want to just uh, bring up that was uh, came out in the media the last couple of days. And we'll do so in just a moment. So don't go away. We'll be right back. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. 
Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. All right. Well, welcome back to the show. You're listening to the podcast that is always up to speed with Formula One with Mark Daly and Mark Hamilton. We're breaking down the latest Formula One news. And just to go back to what we were talking about the first part of the show, Mark, just the the what do you want to call it? The the flurry, the monsoon, the uh, the downpour of penalties that were handed out at the Austrian Grand Prix yesterday. There's been obviously a lot of sound bites and a lot of clips out there in the media the last couple of days. Christian Horner, the team principal of Red Bull, says that Formula One must avoid the equivalent of diving soccer players or footballers, depending whereabouts you are in the world. And I totally agree because everybody knows that. I mean, soccer has that unfortunate stereotype, that that unfortunate uh, perception. And and I say this as as a lifelong soccer fan, not just a, a sports fan in general, but specifically now as a soccer fan. I hate that stereotype. But unfortunately for soccer, it is well-deserved because we all know that every time a player, not every time, but unfortunately there have been plenty of instances in the past where a player gets inside the 18-yard box, one of the defenders makes a lunge or something happens and the guy goes down like he stepped on a landmine and quite often it ends up in the awarding of a penalty kick, which most times ends up in resulting in a goal. So that's there and it exists. And like I say, it is well-deserved, albeit unfortunately for the sport of soccer, especially at the high level, because th- those things have happened too many times. But more to the point and more applicable to the case that we're talking here, just the amount of penalties that we saw last uh, last race. I mean, we saw three of those at least. Uh, you know, I, I, you know, I, I'm probably missing a couple more. But if you know that that precedent has been set, do you maybe try to work that to your exa- to your advantage? If you're saying, I'm not saying that, that that Charles did that on purpose. I think that he was obviously trying to make that pass on the outside on both quarters because it's been done, at least in that turn four, a number of times over recent years. But if Christian's thinking it and he's saying out loud, perhaps maybe somebody else thinks it and maybe that, okay, well, maybe I might not make this pass stick, but maybe this is a way that I can remove one of my rivals from the mix, knowing that the stewards are being quite liberal and quite free-handed in the amount and quantity of uh, penalties that they're handing out. So who knows? Super interesting interpretation. And one of the conversations that we were having offline following the race, and again, we, we know and I think we really love that fact that so much of our audience is, is American. So we get to spend a lot of time kind of drawing these parallels between what we see on the Formula One racetrack versus what you would see in traditional American team sports. But the perspective and the mm-hmm. perception this weekend was very much, this is like when you go to a major league baseball game and the umpire consciously makes the decision that I'm not going to call strikes on the outside side of the plate. And then the teams adjust because by the Mm. end of the first inning, they recognize that, hey, he's calling the game one way and we're going to play accordingly because we know he's not going to call those outside strikes. Or likewise, you often see this in an NBA game as well, where the refs come in and that officiating crew has a very kind of specific perspective on how they're going to call that game. We're going to call it tight. We're going to call all the contact in the paint, or we're going to let that contact go. Teams recognize it early and they start adjusting. It's it's almost like we're getting to your point that we're getting to that point in Formula One where the teams have this opportunity to feel out the the FIA officials a little bit and get a sense of how the race is going to be Mm -hmm. called. And, you know, if you want to go back earlier in the season, let's talk about track limits. Let's talk about the fact that there are specific races where we're not officiating track limits or we're not officiating track limits until a certain point in the race 
or we're only we're only enforcing track limits with specific teams. So I, I guess I guess the big the big kind of major challenge here is ultimately that we're not seeing consistency from race to race. We're not seeing consistency from track to track, corner to corner, team to team. And that's why we're talking so much about, and I keep using the word officiating and it's probably not the correct term for (laughs) motorsports, but ultimately the way the sport is being officiated is creating this perception Mm -hmm. of, Hey, look, we're trying to influence the championship or, Hey, what we're attempting to do is broader than managing and moderating the safety of the drivers. It just, it's not a good look. It doesn't feel good. And I also don't like that the drivers are in a position where they can start adjusting their strategy and their racecraft based on the way that the marshals, well, not the marshals, but the, the officials are calling the race. It's, it doesn't feel good. Yeah. I mean, especially as Christian said that the, uh, the, the, let them race strategy or philosophy whatever you want to call it seems to have gone out the the the, the window and uh, for for those of you out there that are have kids you might appreciate that it seems that the way that the FIA is enforcing these rules and things they've become almost like he- helicopter yeah. parents you know if you want to use that 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 term they're almost micromanaging every little thing and I don't think it's too much of a stretch to even suggest that they are starting to spoil the spectacle a little bit. You know, when it, when it comes to the the point where it's it's out there and it's happening all the time, then yeah, you know, honestly, I've got an issue with that. So I certainly, like I was saying just before the break, I hope that is something that they really recognize and decide to, to do something about. Uh, and another thing, and I think this is a great point uh, from from Lando Norris, and he says that he believes that uh, handing drivers penalty points for minor incidents like uh, that that he got, I mean, he's at risk of uh, of a suspension now. He believes that that should only be reserved for for dangerous driving, and I, I think that's fair. I mean, sure, if you want to give a, a penalty for you know, the incidents that we saw with Perez and with Lando for forcing a car off of the track. Okay. Well, that's fine, but it wasn't like a really nasty, horrible thing. I I think that there's got to be a little bit of common sense put in there because if you're adding penalty points, I mean, on top of the penalty, that's obviously those penalties cost Sergio Perez big time. Lando was a little bit more fortunate just because of the fact that Lewis Hamilton had damaged the car. He just wasn't on the pace that the top three cars were. So it worked out better for for Lando, but maybe it wouldn't have. So it just seems to me it's a bit of a... It's adding insult to injury. I mean, you've already been penalized. Some guys obviously felt it more, but to throw penalty points on top of it, it just... It it seems in these instances that, to me, it seems unnecessary. Current penalty points for Formula One, Lando Norris, 10, Perez, 8, Hamilton, Russell, Vettel, Raikkonen, Latifi sit at 6. And as a reminder, 12 points results in a race ban. So that's not insignificant. No, it's not. I mean, when we have, even if we had a full 23 race uh, calendar this year, I mean, missing one of those races is, is a big thing. But if uh, we're going to talk about a little bit later, is if we lose more races oh, and if we point. had, say, an abbreviated calendar like we had last year with 17 races, say you're Lewis, say you're Max, say you're whoever, you're in that championship fight and you get, uh, you know, you get to that 12 points, you're forced out over something that's you know, let's face it, not a horrible transgression. Sure, you it was bad enough to get a penalty for, but is it really is it really deserving of throwing a couple of penalty points on your super license on top of that? Uh yeah, probably. So let me not. go back and I want your perspective on this, and I just want to make sure we wrap this one up. 
We all talk about sure. the fact that in Formula One, one of the biggest issues has been over the past four or five or six or seven years that there isn't enough racing. Mm-hmm. And that that, sa- that may sound contradictory because we're talking about motorsport and the whole concept of the sport is racing and putting fast cars on a racetrack. But ultimately, we haven't seen enough racing. What we're beginning to see is a pretty competitive midfield. In these cases, we have cars that are attempting to overtake. And according to the FIA, they're being squeezed out. They're not being given enough room. And the FIA is in turn penalizing those cars that aren't giving them room or space, presumably, to overtake. So in a sense, what the FIA is saying is, Mm -hmm. one, it's a safety issue. But two, we also potentially want to open up the track to enable more passing. So it's it's weird because on the one hand, I want to see more racing and I want to encourage more racing. But at the same time, I don't necessarily believe that this is the right way to do it. From your perspective, was this about safety? Was this about racing or was this something else? And I'm specifically talking about Leclerc, Sergio, Lando, those interactions in the race. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't like uh, Schumacher versus Villeneuve back at yeah. uh, Portugal in 97. You know, I, I mean, guys, go go YouTube that one if you want to see what we're talking about. So, yeah, I, I don't know. I I, I think there's going to be the, 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 the public statement that it's going to be down to safety, which I guess ultimately it always is. But again, when it comes down to the fact that, you know, you're trying to pass somebody and you're not really ahead of them, I guess you could maybe argue that Charles was slightly ahead of Sergio on that second or or that first incident. He maybe, I I think at the very least, he was level with Sergio going around that turn four, if not slightly ahead. But, you know, when you're on the outside of the track like that, it's just, and, you know, like we've said, all those gravity basically is how, if you're Sergio, how do you manhandle the car over enough now to give the guy enough space? I mean, it's, it's virtually impossible, right? So, yeah, I, I think safety is ultimately what they're going to come up with, but I, I don't know. I, I really can't say it goes into column A, column B, or column C. It's just, I think they're going to go with, obviously, with safety, but I, I just feel like there's an ulterior motive that I just can't put my finger on right now, and maybe that's just because I'm a guy that likes conspiracy yeah, and, theories, I suppose. And ultimately, I, I don't feel know. like I'm being influenced because I'm emotional because of all the conversations that we've been having about the FIA mm, over the course of the season. True. But at the same time, I've I've gone back and looked at those incidents, and the situation I try to play out in my head is that if those drivers knew they were going to get a penalty based on the racing line that they were maintaining – what would they do or could they do anything differently? And I'm not sure given the speed and also given the forces on the car that there's a lot they could have done to give the other car a lot more space to begin with. And if that's the case, I don't know that that should be a penalty for that driver, that that's more a penalty, not not necessarily a penalty, but that's just a risk that the other driver assumes by going into that compromising Mm -hmm. racing line, which is, look, he's ahead of me or he's next to me and he's carrying a certain amount of speed and he's carrying a certain amount of force into a very sharp downward facing corner. Like there's significant risk of me assuming that racing line, he shouldn't necessarily be penalized. So again, again, I still don't feel comfortable about those penalties simply because of the momentum that's building this season in terms of the FIA influence on the championship. But at the same time, I also don't know that the situation could have played out any differently if the drivers had known there were going to be penalties. Yeah, I mean, uh, talking about more penalties as we finally wrap this one up, uh, the, the last lap incident between Sebastian Vettel and Kimi Raikkonen in, in turn five, which is the next corner after that, 
uh, Sebastian said that that basically came down to a misunderstanding. He uh, he said after the race that he has to go back and look at it. He thought he was ahead, and Kimi basically clipped him in the the left rear tire, and they both went off into the gravel. But you know what was really interesting is uh, because of a result of that, uh, Mazepin. Who Latifi. else? Uh, let's see. There, there's two mates. Yeah, there, there's yeah. Well, there, there's Mazepin, uh, Nicholas uh, Latifi, and or where, where did my notes go? Who was the other one? Uh, Latifi, Mazepin, and Raikkonen, obviously, they all got uh, penalized, but also six other drivers, including Sainz Perez, Ricardo Leclerc, and Gasly, were under investigation for going too fast for the double-waved yellows, which I guess is uh, fair enough. But Latifi and Mazepin were given a 10-second stop-and-go penalty, which was actually turned into a 30-second time penalty at the final uh, classification. So that was all a little bit uh, crazy. So I don't know how the... The, the, the stewards are are uh, compensated for their time and effort but if they get paid I think they they earn their their paychecks on Sunday but I, I can understand in, in that case because I, I think clearly that uh, Raikkonen was at fault for that if Mazepin and uh, Latifi were going too fast through a double waves uh, yellows then absolutely that's that that's a penalty and if it's at the end of the race then sure you know you you can't uh, pull them into the pits for a five second or ten second stop and go penalty sure tap on 30 seconds or whatever you deem is the equivalent to the final race classification i mean for them unfortunately it doesn't really mean too much uh i mean i mean it might affect their final uh, race classification where they finish but i mean neither of them were the points so i mean it's just more of a slap on the wrist if anything so stuff like that i understand and i think is a slightly different category than what we saw with uh, with some of those incidents but maybe just as uh, before we go into a break here mark compared to the incidents with sergio with lando compared to the incident that we saw with say kimi raikkonen would you see those in a different light and if yes would you be in favor of giving say Raikkonen two penalty points on his uh, super license compared to say Lando or Sergio or would you say in both cases they deserve the penalty points and the the, the penalty on top of it? That's such a great question and I, I think my first perspective or my first comment on this is to your earlier comment Raikkonen was 100% at fault that was especially given the tenure that he has in the sport and the fact that he's a champion and he's been racing for almost two decades that instant is is inexcusable and if i'm alfa romeo i mm-hmm. think that has to weigh heavily into our decision making about whether we want to see a return of kimi Raikkonen in 2022 as we try to reboot the team around a new chassis and a new aero philosophy i think that i think this is going to be right. a bit of an inflection moment for the alfa romeo team but it is interesting right that ultimately latifi picked up penalty points and mazapan picked up penalty points but to me that's okay because that was pretty black or white they they whether they saw mm-hmm. it or not, whether they didn't understand, whether they're getting conflicting information from the rest of engineers over the headset, it was double yellows. It's black or white. That's one of those things that you absolutely draw the line in the sand and you have to call it. To me, though, the Raikkonen incident was just, it was dumbheaded driving. And I'm trying not to be mm-hmm. super, super aggressive in terms of my verbiage, but that was just a stupid mistake and he should have known better. When you look at Sergio and you look at mm-hmm. Lando, that's just straight up wheel to wheel racing. And I don't necessarily fault that, yeah. but absolutely Raikkonen should be as penalized as heavily as possible given the circumstances. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I, I think the correct word yeah. is boneheaded. You know, it was it was not his his finest moment. I mean, a guy that is as, as experienced as Kimi Raikkonen should know. What would you uh, do in that situation if you and were total- the race stewards and you call Kimi into the office at the end of the race? How do you handle that one? Mm-hmm. 
I think it's pretty cut and dry. I think that, uh, you know, you have to give, uh, you know, some sort of punishment on that one because, you know, it, it just, it shouldn't have happened. I mean, you know, that's not the sort of thing I expect to see from from Kimi Raikkonen. You know, I would really expect to see that from, say, some of the younger drivers. I might uh, expect to see right. that from Nick. I might expect to see right. that from Nikita Mazepin. And they, obviously, they fell afoul of the marshals. And like you say, double-waved yellows, that's that's cut and dry. That's that That's a penalty right there. And I think that serves as a as a wake up call for them. I mean, they, they'll they'll both obviously say, yeah. I mean, I should have known better, and that that that's on me. I mean, just like it's a it's a slightly less of a transgression, a slightly less of a safety issue with the Yuki and the and the white uh, lines into the pit uh, entry. But you know, it's still still an, a safety issue, albeit in my mind slightly less egregious than going too fast uh, through an area of the track where there's double wave yellows because there's a couple of cars on the grass or in the gravel. There could be track workers and marshals. There could be equipment out there, you know, a crane or a tractor trying to move a a car out of the way. And if another car goes off, then there's a potential for injuries, more accidents. So the double wave yellow, that is is a penalty all, all day long as well. So Anyways, I, I think that we've um, kind of devoted and beat this one into the ground uh, far enough. L- let's take a, a quick break here, Mark. And when we come back, we have to mention this because uh, we're 35 minutes into this and we haven't mentioned the fact that Mr. Hamilton, Lewis, is the recipient of a brand new contract to Mercedes-Benz. And we'll do that in just a moment. So don't go away. We'll be right back. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. All right. Well, welcome back to the show, guys. And just a couple of comments from the the live chat on uh, YouTube. Micah SLF, uh, he has to say, it's frustrating because these penalties are entirely inconsistent with how they've gone about similar situations in other races this season. 100% agree there. And then Kay Chen has to say, uh, Raikkonen got two points and uh, Lando uh, Norris also got two points. They got the same amount of penalty points for incidents that were entirely different in severity. 100% Absolutely. That's he. Yeah. Yeah, they've completely summed up what we said in about 15 minutes and <laughs> nicely in one paragraph. Anyways, and hey, before well we done. move on, because oh, I really want to get to the next topic, sure. but I think we would be remiss if we didn't quickly touch on this, and it probably would have deserved sure. any other race weekend, if we didn't see all the shenanigans in terms of FIA penalties and all of that friction and noise, it probably would have mm-hmm. got top billing, but... I just want to make sure that we recognize Lando's performance this weekend. And when we were having our Twitter spaces chat earlier this evening, one of the questions that kept coming up over and over and over again is how is it that this guy who's consistently scoring podiums and is now out qualifying Mercedes Benz formula one cars, how is he not getting more shine and more press? And to me, that was a really good observation that ultimately this is a guy who's not a young, talented prospect with a ton of potential upside. He's demonstrating that upside race weekend after race weekend. And for perspective, he's driving a McLaren car 
which has a chassis that was designed for a Renault power unit, not the Mercedes power unit that mm -hmm. is actually driving around the track in today. And if you look at the championship standings right now, he's sitting fourth in the driver's championship, three points, three points behind Sergio Perez. He puts in another <laughs> exceptional performance this weekend, potentially would have finished second on the podium if not for that penalty that you and I were speaking so much about. And furthermore, and this was something that one of our listeners brought up in the Spaces chat, I think it was Joe, if you look at the final qualifying times in Q3, Max puts in a 103.720. So 103.720. Lando a fraction, a fraction of a second behind at 1.03.768. A fraction, like an almost immeasurably small amount of time behind Max. It could easily have been that he had qualified on pole, and I don't think he would have kept it. But I just want to make sure that we give some shine to a driver that is doing everything and more than we probably could ever have expected him to do this year. And for me, I'm all in on Lando Norris, I think he's a great driver. And one of the other things mm -hmm. that we talked about a little bit tonight as well is, and the Checkered Flag podcast was talking about this last week, which is in 2019 and 2020, McLaren really leaned into his personality and his personality was young and it was fun and it was goofy. He was basically a walking meme. And I think that's cool because if mm -hmm. you're the marketing team for McLaren or you're their social media team, this is really great because you can lean into this. I mean, he's accessible and he's fun and the younger audience can relate to him. But he showed up to winter testing this year and his perspective, his strategy, his philosophy was completely different. He's still fun. He's still a nice guy and he's still accessible, but his approach to every single Grand Prix weekend is totally different. And boy, is it showing, take or boy, is it paying off. I, I can't say enough good stuff about how his racecraft has developed, how his professionalism has developed, how his approach to a race weekend has developed. And obviously, we all heard that comment that, yeah. that Lewis made over the radio during the race weekend. But I just want to make sure that we lean into oh, it. Yeah, right. Not only was he on the podium, not only could he potentially have been second, he could have taken his first pole. He was that close. Yeah, exactly. I mean, he was only four and a half hundredths of a second behind uh, Max in his uh, Q3 time. But it's interesting. If you look at the, the three cars that uh, got into 103s, it was Max, Lando, and Sergio. Hamilton just on the wrong side of one minute, four seconds. He said a, a fastest uh, Q3 time of 104.014. Yeah. But what I find really interesting is if you look at uh, Norris's uh, times, in Q1, Norris uh, sets a time of 104.345. Ricardo, his teammate, sets a 104.977. Wow. So point, yeah, so there's a big difference right there. His uh, second time in uh, Q2, uh, Lando sets a 104.415. Uh, and uh, Ricardo's time is a 104.719. So three-tenths of a second right there. Danny Ricardo doesn't make it out of Q2. He qualifies 13th. And then, of course, he, well, we we won't know how fast, uh, you know, what uh, what sort of a Q three time Ricardo could have set because he didn't make it that far. So, arguably, the track was a little bit faster if you look at the progression of the lap times. But I would say, at least just based on those two average times, that he's you know between Q one and two Q Q two. Pardon me, is you would think just based on those that he would be somewhere in the neighborhood at least of half a second behind his teammate. But then you go and look at the final race classification. 
you have uh, Lando finishing P3 and his teammate finishing P7. I mean, he's, he's a minute behind compared to 20 seconds behind for, 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 for Lando. So, I mean, yeah, he's not chasing Max, but he's not that far behind Bottas. And I mean, more importantly, he's quite a bit up the road from, from Lewis, although Lewis was uh, struggling. But I think when it comes down that uh, Lando I think there's no doubt now that he he came into Formula One a couple of years ago, promising hot young prospect. I think that what we've seen over the progression of 2020 into 2021, the guy's legit. I mean, he's doing stuff in a car and he's posting results and qualifying results and, and, and race results that he probably shouldn't be doing right now. I mean, just based on the you know the the difference that we see between himself and his teammate and yes we know that this McLaren maybe isn't the easiest car to drive but I've you know honestly and I love Danny Ricardo but I would have thought that by this point of the season we're, we're a third of the way through the season now at least just based on where we're at and he's still struggling to to really find the sweet spot I thought that perhaps a couple of weeks ago in France he finally had it figured out then we go to Austria and we've kind of regressed to where we were you, earlier in the year with you Danny Ricardo. absolutely nailed it and I saw a tweet earlier today and it basically summed up Lando Norris's season in a nutshell is that every single conversation mm. that starts with Lando Norris at some point transitions into a conversation about Daniel Ricardo. And you did a perfect job of summarizing why, which is if you look at their Q1 times, Lando Norris was a half second ahead of his teammate, Daniel Ricardo. And if you look at Ricardo's Q2 time, it's a full second behind the Q3 time that Lando Norris put in. And again, if you look at the race classification, we're talking about almost a minute behind his teammate in the exact same car, running the exact same aero setup with the exact same wing, the exact same suspension, and the exact same tire strategy. It's it's unfathomable mm-hmm. that he could be so far behind. And somebody on the Spaces chat today, and I apologize, I can't remember who, I think it may have been Andre, but made this great observation that at what point does McLaren just recognize that he's not benefiting the team in a meaningful way that ultimately you could, Mm. you could cut that tie free up $17 million a year because that's what Daniel Ricardo is making. And it's a significant decline from the $30 million a year who is making at Renault. But what if you just turn that over, put $15 million back into the team and pay a young driver $2 million. It's unlikely that you're going to for forfeit a ton of championship points, but you're absolutely right that early in the season, I was willing to give, Daniel Ricardo, the benefit of the doubt. Obviously, his season, his career had started within the Red Bull family. He was very familiar with the Renault power unit. He goes to Renault. He's continuing to drive with a Renault power unit. Then he makes the move to McLaren and their their design philosophy and the car is very different than anything he'd experienced. The power unit was very different. So in terms of power delivery and mm-hmm. engine setup and mode and all those kind of pieces, there was a lot to learn. But this is still a guy that's been in the championship for almost 10 years and has won Grand Prix. It's no longer acceptable that there be this type of delta between him and a teammate, especially when that teammate's only been in the sport for three years. This is as big a conversation as it is Lando's huge successes. I just want to make sure that we recognize that what Lando is doing is fantastic, independent of the struggles that Ricardo's having. Yeah, absolutely. And I just wanted to mention something here as well. And and bear in mind that I'm just sort of extrapolating and making this uh, educated comparison. So we're going with the fact that Ricardo doesn't make it out of Q2. We're going with uh, the assumption 
or the uh, let's just say the calculation that the difference between Norris and uh, Ricardo was half a second based on the fact that they were both in Q1 and Q2. So if you compare the the McLarens with the other two, the two teams that are ahead of them, the constructors, McLaren, sorry, Mercedes and Red Bull. So the difference in Q3 between Max and Perez, Max posts a Q3 time of 103.720. Sergio posts a time of 103.990. So about, uh, you know, about two two tenths, two and a half tenths there, uh, just a little bit more than that. Then you look at Lewis and uh, Bottas in Q3. Lewis sets a time, the fastest time of 104.014. Bottas sets a a fastest Q3 time of 104.049. So pretty close there. We're in the hundreds rather than a couple of tenths. So, but I mean, the the point is that Bottas and Hamilton are obviously a little uh, closer than Perez and Verstappen, but I mean, say, say two and a half tenths, maybe that's not a completely horrible or something to really get concerned about between Max and Sergio. I think that's uh, still fairly uh, respectable. But I think when you start getting into the, the 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 realm of half a second, because you just do a little bit of uh, basic physics of you know distance and velocity and time and all those uh, co- combinations thereof, that, that, that half a second on a single lap doesn't seem like much, but over the course of multiple laps, that equals to a fairly substantial deficit distance further down the road than you are to the car in front of you. And ultimately, that is the big decider of uh, whether or not you're going to be competitive to win a race or not on on a day like that. But do you have any thoughts you know? on what might be driving Ricardo's struggles this year? It's something I've racked my brain about, and I've dug into it on the internet. I've asked people. I can't put my finger on one specific thing. And Same. I know earlier in the year we were talking about the fact that there was those quotes from Ricardo that he was looking at the telemetry and the data coming out of Lando Norris's car, and he couldn't figure out how he was carrying so much speed in the corners and how he was getting out of the corner so quickly mm-hmm. and how he was breaking so late that he couldn't kind of wrap his head around a lot of the telemetry that he was seeing coming out of that cars. Ultimately, he just doesn't have the same pace, not even close. And I can't understand why that is. Yeah, it, it's something I haven't been able to put my finger on now, but I, I know that hindsight is twenty twenty, but I, I still can't help but think that that Ricardo pulled the pin on his Red Bull career way too soon. I think that if uh, he'd been a lot more patient, maybe he didn't want to play second fiddle to Max. But you, you go back to 2018 now, and I, I just can't help but think that that just was not the right move that uh, Ricardo made. I mean, especially going to the time, at, at the time, going to Renault, a team that was still trying to figure things out in Formula One and then moving to McLaren, which was arguably a bit of a better move. And based on where they are right now compared to Alpine, which is the, you know, the 2021 version, renamed, rebranded version of a Renault, I, I just can't help but thinking that even though he's at McLaren now, that had he stayed with, you know, Red Bull for a couple more years. Yes, maybe he might have been second fiddle to Max, but there would have been a lot more. We we would have been talking about Ricardo and a lot more. Yeah, positive results. Absolutely. Let's just put it that way. I, of, I I just one yeah, of the absolute biggest what ifs in modern Formula One is what if Daniel Ricardo had stayed with Red Bull? And as much as I think we might lean into. Daniel's own decision-making and the fact that he knowingly went to a team with an inferior package when he made that transition from Red Bull Mm. to the Renault team, which hadn't scored a podium at that point since they'd returned to Formula One in 2015. As much as we can criticize him for that, I think we also have to criticize Red Bull for allowing the relationship to get to a point where he was was mentally checked out and he wanted to depart. 
But you look back at 2019, and when I think about Red Bull in 2019, you know what I'm thinking about? I'm thinking about the fact that they did a mid-season driver swap. There was all that noise about Gasly. They bring Albon in. He he seems to show some flourishes, but the entire conversation about Red Bull that year was not necessarily about them competing for a constructors championship. It was about the noise and the decision making about the drivers. And then if you look at 2020, mm-hmm. the only narrative that carried that team throughout the entire season was: Are they going to keep Albon? How long are they going to keep Albon? What's wrong with Albon? Why is he struggling? When are they going to mm-hmm. replace him? That was the only thing that we talked about with Red Bull last year. And if they'd had Daniel Ricciardo in that seat those two years, maybe there would have been some friction and maybe there would have been some competitiveness between those two drivers. But that's not necessarily a bad thing if you're stacking up constructors' points and chasing a championship. They really set themselves back in some ways by not by not coming to more agreeable terms with a Ricardo early on. So I think as much as it's a what-if from Ricardo's perspective, what would his career look like? It's also a what-if from a Red Bull perspective in terms of in terms of uh, what the last couple of years would have looked like. And I think now Red Bull's okay. They're in a position where I think they're very, very happy with Perez. But Perez this year is very much what mm-hmm. Daniel Ricciardo would have been the last two years anyways, as far as I'm concerned. Oh, yeah. Great point. 100%. I, I totally agree. And that is a situation that they were either continually going to get wrong. And uh, obviously, at some point, they figured it out. But certainly, I, I think you make a really, really great point there that that was a situation that they allowed to develop and they, they should have recognized it uh, sooner because he was just obviously, like you say, he was mentally checked out. He was ready to go. And they've been fighting it ever since. And maybe they wouldn't have been able to win that Constructors' uh, Championship sooner, but uh, they certainly, I think they would have had a lot more podiums. They were they, they were definitely there, especially last year in the, the absence of a Ferrari, maybe even going back to 2019 as well. So I think that their failure to address that that situation sooner and let it to develop to the the the, the level that it did ultimately hurt them. And you just know, really one more thought too on this one because you said something a couple it. of weeks ago and I wanted to make this point then and I didn't get the opportunity. I think a lot of the decision making oh, okay. around Ricardo was built on arrogance, and I think the arrogance really comes less from Christian mm. Horner but more from Helmet Marco. And for those of you that aren't aware, Christian Horner basically runs the day to day operations of the team but helmet marco is really tasked with managing the developer uh development pipeline so he's the one that's managing the lower formulas mm-hmm. identifying talent signing people to the academy and i think his influence within the red bull organization is probably disproportionate relative to what it should be and i think from his perspective Ultimately, he probably didn't want to see Ricardo go, but he has a ton of confidence in the development pipeline that they built, whether it was a Gasly or whether it was a Kvyat or whether it was a, a Yuki or all these other kind of mm-hmm. pieces. So I think his perspective was like, you know what, you want to go, that's fine. We've got all these other pieces. And as it turns out, maybe those pieces Perfect, weren't as yeah. far along the development pathway as they needed to be to take up that seat next to Max Verstappen. And then ultimately, I think for for Helmut Marco, the fact that the team had to go and sign an outside driver in Sergio Perez was probably a huge, huge blow to his ego. <laughs> yeah, I have nothing more to add to that. To the way that you, you stole, you you yanked everything right out of my mind. But yeah, great points. Uh, I, I completely agree with everything that you say. I mean, it, it probably internally, the, the attitude is uh, probably verbalized a lot different. But from the outside, the, the impression that I get is kind of like uh, almost um, screw it. If you don't want to stay around, it's no big exactly. deal because if you don't want to be here, we've got exactly. somebody else that, that wants to. So 
Anyways, okay, time for one more break, Mark. When we come back, we're finally going to talk about Lewis Hamilton's brand new contract. We'll do so in just a minute, guys. So don't go away. We'll be right back. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all... It's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. All right. Well, welcome back to the show. And and shall we talk about Let's Lewis' do it. new contract? Because, uh, you, you know, I, I know we're a day late, a, do- a dollar short when it comes to talking about yesterday's Grand Prix. But, you know, we've been there, done that. But the big news of the weekend is that Lewis Hamilton has a new two-year contract, which is going to keep him at Mercedes until the end of uh, 2023. And I have to admit that from the point, my point of view, I'm very happy to see this done now because it really, it's six months or eight months too late because this is something that should have been addressed in the off season. That one year deal that they gave him till the end of this year, it always had the 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 appearance, the impression of just a a temporary band aid solution. It was just like let's get the guy a contract, let's get him into the car, let's go racing, and we'll figure this thing out at some point in the future. We never liked that from the beginning. We said this is a terrible way to go into the season. It, it is uh, at least publicly looks a little bit disrespectful to this guy that's won a ton of championships for you, has won a ton of races, and it just it it just it looked wrong. It felt wrong. So finally, better late than never, which I get is I, I guess is perhaps maybe the the subtext for this show today is you know for for many reasons, not just Lewis's uh, new con, uh, contract, but I think that better late than never. It's good that they finally got this deal done. And the championship, even though there is a fairly big gap between Lewis and Max, at least now it's one thing that's off the table, one thing that's not going to bug him because it's one personal thing. Now they can get down to racing. They can focus on the car. They can focus on the uh, on the races ahead. And and for Mercedes and hopefully for Lewis himself and for, for his fans, they can focus on winning some races, picking up some points and closing that gap between himself. Everything and, uh, that you're saying down. sounds great, but I think ultimately what this signing is going to do is enable the team to start looking at who's going to be racing next to him next year. As much as much as yes. the internet world has wanted Mercedes to throw up a press release saying George Russell is going to be joining us at Mercedes from Hungary on or from Spa on, that was never going to happen until the Lewis Hamilton contract situation was settled. If Hamilton wanted to come back, you sure. need to sort that out. You need to make sure that financially he's settled, financially he's happy. And you also need to be able to present a vision of what the next two or three years are going to look like for him. And we hear this all the time in North American sports where a free agent goes to a team and they they do a pitch. They bring him into a boardroom. They put up a PowerPoint presentation. They play a video and they basically pitch him on what their plan is for the next one or two or three years. And oftentimes so much of that mm-hmm. plan is built around or predicated on their ability to bring in other talent, other players, coaches, executives, and those kind of pieces. I think for Lewis, it was one money was no doubt a big piece of this, but don't think for a second that a big chunk of his decision-making was driven by, and no pun intended, driven 
driven, but his decision making was ultimately driven <laughs> by the fact that he has some influence or he has some understanding on who that second driver is. Mercedes knows that decision's made. They simply couldn't execute on that until the Lewis contract was settled because if they couldn't come to agreeable terms with Lewis, maybe the situation's entirely different and you're looking at two drivers, not one. The Lewis Hamilton situation is settled, and now I think they can look at driver 1B, whoever that's going to be. Maybe they don't announce it in season. Mm -hmm. I, I hope they do because, as you mentioned last week, I feel like they owe Bottas the, the courtesy of giving him that two- or three-month runway to look for another Formula One job. I, I would hope that they do that. But I think you're right. It's one less distraction. It's not no distractions. It's one less distraction. But I think now we'll really start to see the rumor mill start to heat up around, is it going to be Bottas? Is it going to be Russell? Is it going to be someone yeah. else? And a lot of people are asking this question as well about what does the dollars look like? We don't know. But the Sun in the UK is reporting that it's a two-year, 80 million pound deal valued at 40 million pounds a year, which translates to about 55 million US per season, uh, which translates in turn to about 190 million Canadian. Okay, that, that last part was a joke, but 40 million, legitimately 40 million pounds <laughs> a year or 55 million US per season, if that helps contextualize his value to Formula One versus what somebody in the NBA or the NFL might make. Sure, and I, I think that's that that seems the right amount of money to Completely give Lewis agree. for a two year contract. But also, it's the the what do you want to call it? The fine print, some of the the extra little things into it, because we we don't know any of it. And one of the things that you and I have speculated about now for months is just the amount of influence or say that Lewis has in deciding who his uh, teammate is going to be. Because recently. There was this uh, quote out there. I just want to read it uh, because this you know, settles it without a doubt from Lewis's point of view, who he would like as his teammate. And this uh, is as follows, quote, Valtteri is my teammate now, and both of us have had ups and downs in our careers. But he is a fantastic teammate, and I don't necessarily see that it needs to change. We have worked well for many years. Valtteri has been my best teammate overall. And when I say teammate, it's not just driver performance. It's about team morale and how you work in the teammate environment, end quote. So, I mean, publicly, I mean, he's giving, he's really pumping Absolutely. up uh, Valtteri's tires there. He's really showing him a lot of love. And I, I think that <laughs> behind closed doors, he's probably saying that in a lot, uh, how do you want to put it, a, a lot maybe plainer than that. I, I, I mean, if, even though that it's not really, really drawn out, but I think he's going to be quite adamant that he wants to keep uh, Valtteri as his, as his teammate uh, at Mercedes. No, no doubt uh, Valtteri wants to be there as well. But as long as Russell is out there and that potential for him to come in and, and take that second seat, that, that it just raises a lot of questions. I know we're basing it all on that one race in Sakhir last year, but still what he did that not just the race, but the entire weekend was impressive. And, you know, he's a young driver. He's aggressive driver. He's got a lot to prove in Formula One where, where Valtteri, I think that he's going to be obviously just that little bit naturally slower than Lewis. And I think that there's just too many question marks out there for, for, for Lewis and George Russell, not to say that George is as good as or as fast as Lewis, but I think that 
that question mark might persist. And I think that for, for Lewis, it might be persistent enough that it might be something that he doesn't want to test. He doesn't want to put that theory to the test in the, the crucible of a real life Formula One season. And in doing so, potentially maybe sullying his own legacy. Because, I mean, let's face it, I mean, this season is still to be decided. I think that these next two years could very much be Lewis's mm. swan song and potentially be that ending to what his Formula One career could be. Maybe he signs in 24, maybe he signs a one-year deal. Who knows? We'll have to see that in two years from now. But... I, I don't. I, I think what he wants. I think he wants as much control around the landscape of how his career is going to play out from here, and I think that that he wants to take one variable out of the equation, and that one variable, the unknown, is George Russell, whereas Valtteri is the one known you know, quantity that he knows. Not just how he, that how he's going to work with that guy, but also how that guy is going to line up against him on the track. He knows that he's most of the time he's going to be better than him, but he knows that his teammate is also going to deliver a ton of points, and he's going to Absolutely. win some races. I too, love the probably. way that you articulated by the that that by the way that was beautiful. I, I think that the other consideration here is that if Hamilton and again, this is all perception. We don't know anything. We we extrapolate a lot from quotes, yep. but you're absolutely right. Hamilton's quotes sure. regarding Bottas recently have been very, very favorable. And they've been very, very, very friendly. And I don't know why he would make those comments in public, if not for the fact that he was campaigning to retain him as a second driver. I think the risk though, that if you're Mercedes is that if you do opt in to Bottas again, you have to understand you do so knowing that Russell will be gone. And I don't know where he's going to go, and I don't necessarily know what that's going to look like. I don't know if it's going to be out of principle or simply because he signs an agreement with a different team. I just can't believe that he's going to wait another year with that Williams team. And this is coming from a guy, I'm not the biggest Russell supporter out there. I, I appreciate, and you're right, what he did in that Mercedes car last year and that one weekend in Sahir when Lewis had COVID was exceptional and he put himself in a really great position to score a lot of points or potentially take a race win. But mm -hmm. ultimately, he was also put in a position where it's the best car that potentially we've ever seen in Formula One on a track that's well suited to that car and with a driver. And as much as people mm -hmm. talk about the fact that, hey, he didn't fit in the car, he wasn't familiar with the car, he wasn't familiar with the setup, he didn't understand the real, he's been testing Mercedes cars for years. Maybe not that one, but he's been testing Mercedes cars for years. He's familiar with the mechanics, he's familiar with the engineers, he put time in, in the simulators. That wasn't a completely unexpected outcome it was sad that he didn't win the race because i think he'd done everything that was necessary to do so but again he was in the best car i'm still not convinced that he's as talented as lando i think lando's done some phenomenally great things i'm also not convinced that he's as good as gasly and gasly won a race in an alpha towery that that's that's exceptional mm -hmm. and he's continued to win podiums so as much as i think he's got talent i don't know that he should necessarily be proclaimed the the next coming of Ayrton Senna or Lewis Hamilton and be gifted that race seat because I don't know that he's necessarily any better than Pierre Gasly or Lando Norris. And I think if I'm Mercedes and it's not going to be Bottas, we owe ourselves we owe ourselves that opportunity to canvas far and wide for the next best driver. And if Lewis believes it's Bottas and we think it's Bottas, go with Bottas. But I don't like this 
kind of presumption that it's automatically going to be Russell because as much as people are excited about the fact that he was in contention for points this weekend, he finished 11th. And even if he'd finished in the points, it would be his first points finish in a Williams car in three years. You've started 50 Grand Prix and you've never been in the points. Ultimately, that's not necessarily acceptable. And I get it that it's the worst car in the world, but ultimately he had a good race weekend. He got into Q3. That's fantastic. But what's to say some of that isn't the development of the Williams car? What's to say that in three years, the factory hasn't been able to do some things to push that car along from a development perspective? So ultimately, Mm -hmm. I think my point is, George is a very talented driver. I don't know that he's better than Lando. I don't know that he's better than Gasly. I don't know that he's going to help you win a Constructors' Championship. Obviously, Lewis feels that the team has a better chance if Bottas is in that seat. And if you lead into Bottas, you do so knowing that you're probably not going to be able to retain Russell's services. But if it's not going to be Bottas, I hope they don't rush into Russell because I think Gasly would also be a fantastic fit. And he's been on the podium. So that's my rant for the week. <laughs> you know, it really is interesting, right? Because, I mean, that is the big $64,000 question is how does George line up and compare to other drivers of his class, of, of his, uh, his that, that young generation? How does he compare right. to the Landos? How does he compare to the Gasleys, et cetera, right? And the big question, I, I mean, that is the big question out there because that Williams doesn't compare to the Alpha Tauri. The Alpha Tauri is a better car. The McLaren's a better car than the Alpha Tauri and therefore obviously a better car than the Williams. So it is very difficult to to truly make those comparisons where we've got a very good sample of data of, of Lando Norris driving a McLaren, of Pierre Gasly driving an Alpha Tauri and also driving a Red Bull. So we we could really know what we have in terms of drivers and quality when it comes to to both uh, Lando and to, to Pierre Gasly. But George, he's still that that big uh, question mark. But you know, it would have been really interesting to see if that uh, that that second driver was an issue, was a topic of discussion between Mer- Mercedes and and Lewis, and maybe they're pushing that along. Of course, this is pure speculation and it's fun to do so but perhaps maybe this comes up in the in the discussion say yeah well we know that you've only got a couple more years we want to start doing succession planning we want to get george into that car and we want to get him into the car starting next year but maybe lewis would it be interesting if he said okay yes. well i'll meet you halfway next year's the new is that is the new car cars we're throwing all our development into this uh, into this new car for 2022 2021 maybe a bit of a throwaway season we're not expecting to win anything give me Valtteri one more year and then 22 i'll meet you halfway get we give Valtteri one more year and then bring uh, uh, sorry uh, uh george in for 2022 and then whatever yeah. so it'd be interesting who knows if that'll play out this is me thinking out loud but it just to really I'm, I'm just kind of going through the rubik's cube of different uh, different scenarios that could play out and i'm and, gonna throw and, one, and one more scenario at you as well lives. what's to say that the value sure that's not an inconsiderate contract so if the sun is correct and it is 55 million US per Mm -hmm. year, which doesn't sound unreasonable given the fact that Hamilton took a pretty hefty pay cut this year on the premise that it was a one-time slash because of the COVID situation. If he is being paid $55 million for the next two seasons, what does this say that's not predicated on the agreement that Mercedes will get final decision on the second driver that, hey, look, Lewis, we value you. We're going to show you how much we value you. Here's $100 million, $110 million for two years of service, but we need you to support Mm -hmm. our driver decision. So again, to to your point about that Rubik's Cube, there's so many different ways to play this. 
Yeah, I love it. And it, it will be fascinating to see what uh, what plays out, especially over the summer break, because that's one thing that's kind of been there. And I don't know how much it's just a speculation or if there's any truth to it. But, you know, there, there was that discussion out there that perhaps George might come in at some point and replace Valtteri. But it would be interesting and it wouldn't be on the, the, the realms of possibility. But when it comes to Mercedes, I would almost find that a little bit... Very un-Mercedes-like because the championships are yet to be decided. And I think that would just basically, it would almost see, seem yeah. like a desperation move when you know what, you know, what Bottas brings, especially on on the heels of a second place in Austria this past week. And I know he's had some struggles recently, but not all of it was his own making, but it certainly... It certainly would be a signal, I think, to everybody outside of Mercedes that, yeah, we, we've decided to, you know, change things up uh, drastically. And it doesn't get more drastic than changing Absolutely. a driver mid-season. And I don't really have a lot more to add to that topic. But Well, that's too bad because we're kind of sticking with that topic, but in a little bit uh, different, uh, different uh, manner. But Fernando Alonso said that he felt sad, which is interesting because I didn't know Fernando actually has emotions, but uh, sure, we'll go with this. He said he felt sad for taking the final point off of George Russell at the Austrian Grand Prix. Uh, Fernando, uh, you know, pipping P10 out of George. And I felt like this was a copy-paste job from last year's Mugello Grand Prix when Sebastian Vettel pretty much did the same thing to George by taking that P10 and denying him from the the, the final point uh, paying uh, position. But it was uh, interesting. Uh, Fernando had to say, quote, it was very intense, unfortunately, uh, for only one point, but it felt like uh, it was the last lap of the championship for us. At one point, it was gold for him and for ourselves starting 14th. It was nice. In a way, I saw it was George. I felt uh, a little bit sad that the battle had to be with him. I think uh, he will have the opportunity to stand on the podium and fight for race wins, I guess, in the future if he goes to Mercedes. I enjoyed today one point starting 14th was not expected as our simulations this morning they were a little more pessimistic than p10 i will take the point end quote so there you go we learned a couple of things there number one fernando has emotions and number two he guesses that uh, if george is going anywhere he probably is going to mercedes so i thought that was a bit uh, funny my uh, own bad humor and takes notwithstanding so anyways couple more stories before we wrap it up uh, tonight mark so there is a big well not a big rumor but there's a story floating out there right now that the australian grand prix set to go in november is going to be scratched because of the strict international border rules and everything to do with uh, with the covid and this new delta strain and the quarantine system that they have and uh, you know it's it would be really sad to see if that uh, that that happens i i sure hope that it doesn't of course safety and people's health is is paramount when it comes to things like this but it you know november seems like such a long way away i mean we're only the beginning of july now hopefully this doesn't happen but i guess if they're going to make a decision they're going to have to make it soon because it takes a while to set that track up but uh, it would be very it would be disappointing considering how the situation with the pandemic seems to be improving so well in other agree. parts of the world. I had a sinking feeling in my stomach earlier tonight because we were getting ready for a spaces session with some of our listeners at 8 p.m. And Michelle G., who's one of our loyal sure. listeners, had sent a comment that, hey, here's a great new topic to talk about, which is the cancellation of the Australian Grand Prix. And I had this sinking feeling in me because I had a bad feeling that this was coming. And I think the concern here is, one, Australia's 
has some issues right now, principally kind of driven by two things. One is which they have very, very, very strict quarantine protocols for travelers that are entering the country. So you have to go Mm -hmm. through an absolutely strict two-week quarantine. And as one of our listeners who lives in Melbourne, Joe said earlier tonight, to, to change that protocol on the premise that you're bringing in athletes and entertainment isn't a good look culturally and from a society perspective, it just doesn't look good that if you make exceptions to formula one, et cetera, et cetera. And two, Australia has one of the lowest vaccination rates of any developed country in the world. And to put this into perspective, Australia, I want to make this super political, but it gives you a little bit of perspective, maybe into the kind of the thought process of the Italian, the Italian, the Australian politicians, but Australia is right now, the percentage of the population that's fully vaccinated is 7.3 versus Canada at 35.2, Spain at 40%, the United Kingdom at 50% and the US at 50%. So they are miles behind the rest of the world in terms of vaccination and in terms of protecting Mm -hmm. their population. And the other risk too is I still think that Brazil And I think Japan and I think even Mexico City are relatively vulnerable for very much the same reasons, not because they have the same really strict quarantine protocols for people that are landing in those countries. But if you look at Japan right now, 14% fully vaccinated, Mexico, 16% fully vaccinated and Brazil, 13% fully vaccinated. So at the beginning of the season, I was talking about the fact that I felt that the front half of the calendar was really vulnerable in terms of disruption and changes and cancellation. As it turns out, the back half might have as much as much disruption as we had expected over any part of the calendar. So it looks like Australia is gone. It also means that the Australian MotoGP race is probably going to be gone as well. I'm still not totally confident that we're going to see a race in Japan. We know that they're going to push forward with the Olympics, largely because the state had invested billions of dollars in infrastructure to make that happen. But I'm still not totally confident that we're going to be in Brazil, we're going to be in Japan, or that really we're maybe even in Mexico. I think at this point, a second race at Coda in Austin is a no-brainer. They're going to need it to make up for some of these lost races. But I'm heartbroken. I was excited to get back to Melbourne. It's one of the most beautiful vistas in the circuit. You've talked so much about the changes that they've made to the track to promote more racing just means we're probably gonna have to wait till March of next year to see it. Sadly, yes. And I can confirm breaking news that the MotoGP event and the Australian Grand Prix has now officially been cancelled. This is just uh, broken in the past half hour or so. Anyways, in a statement uh, from the uh, the Australian Grand Prix Corporation, CEO Andrew Westacott had to say, quote, I would like to extend my thanks to the Victorian government, Formula One and Dorna Sports for their unwavering resilience and support during this challenging period and for their ongoing commitment to these two great events. There are bound to be ongoing challenges with COVID-19, but I want to reassure fans that while there is a sadness and disappointment amongst our wonderful AGPC staff, there is a tenacity and determination to make sure that the next episodes of the MotoGP TM at the Island and Formula One at the new Albert Park layout are sensational showcases of how we do things in Victoria. End quote. Formula One CEO Stefano Domenicali uh, also had to say, quote, while it's disappointing we won't be racing in Australia this season, we are confident we can deliver a 23 race season in 2021 and we have a number of options to take forward to replace the place left vacant by the Australian Grand Prix. We will be working through the details of those options in the coming weeks and we'll provide further updates once those discussions are concluded end quote. So yeah that's sad to say and also uh, Kay Chen just also uh, threw that out in the the, the live chat so this is literally a thanks for that uh, uh, of course and this is literally just breaking as we're sitting down to do this 
so for once this doesn't come out immediately after we uh, unplug the mic so disappointing but uh sounds like there are some options and i i wonder if perhaps we might get to, to go back to turkey because that uh, was obviously on the the calendar and then wasn't mugello is obviously an option i wonder if hockenheim or the nurburgring they are options as well so we will watch this space and see i'll just i'll just add to that quickly one of our listeners earlier tonight and i promised i would steal sure. this but i'm going to give azam credit for this his recommendation is that if you look at the back of the calendar uh we go to great britain hungary belgium the netherlands italy russia we go into turkey which is a substitute race already japan u.s mexico Brazil, and then we were supposed to jump from Brazil to Australia, then to Saudi and Abu Dhabi. His recommendation is we do the outer mm-hmm. ring at Bahrain in place of Australia because we're already in the region. So you basically fly into Bahrain. It's a short hop to Jeddah, and then it's a short hop back to the conclusion in uh, Abu Dhabi. So I thought that actually made a lot of sense, uh, and I think that would be pretty exciting to see as well. So you would finish with uh, Bahrain, Saudi Arabia, and Abu Dhabi. Well, according to Huffle Z Puffle in the live chat, uh, he does not agree with that, and uh, he's going for the "give me that Dakota." I think that's going to happen. So, hey, I'm you know, confident we're going to see uh, that. that, that <laughs> you know that that would be interesting. I mean, uh, the Circuit of Americas is a great venue, and they always have a you know do a good job there. I mean, it is quite possible we could see a doubleheader there, so that would be uh, kind of cool. You know that uh, Texas would be good hosts, so that'd be uh, yeah. And the race organizers that have on. already announced as well that they've cleared the calendar to enable a doubleheader. So in the event that Japan doesn't happen, we will Sweet. absolutely be going from Turkey to Kota for a back to back. Cool. Okay, so final story of the night, and this is uh, by no means a small one, but apparently the 2025 new engine specs for Formula One are going to have what they're calling a massively increased electric component. So this is uh, very, very interesting because we've been talking about this uh, for for a while. What with the engine freeze? We don't know what the engines are going to look like after 2025. So there are a number of different uh, components in the engine that that are part of the electric uh, unit besides the traditional uh, internal combustion engine. So this is going to be very fascinating because they've already been talking about this new generation of... uh, what do you want to call it, exotic fuels and sustainable fuels and things like that. And to me, this makes more sense. If you can't go more to, like, say, the the full switch to an electric vehicle, to an electric power unit, which I think obviously seems the ultimate trajectory that that, that this will will, will go unless something dramatic uh, transpires. But this seems... I guess sort of logical. More more electric uh, components, you know, make that uh, that that hybrid, uh, make it more hybrid if you want to call it that. Throwing those ex- uh, you know, exotic fuels into it, and and that to me seems very Formula One. You still have that core internal combustion engine, but as time goes on, it seems like it's going to be less and less of a of, of a feature. So I'm very interested in this to see how this is going to develop over the next uh, couple of years and where this ultimately lands. What this new spec is very, very, very excited about this. There's kind of two ways you can look at this, right? Which is, I think inevitably we Mm -hmm. all believe that formula one is going to get to a place where it has to be all electric. I don't think we're there yet. And I think in a sense, what Liberty is doing here is kind of kicking the can down the road a bit, a little bit. And I know that's an old cliche, but ultimately we know where we're probably going to be in 10 years, 15 years, 
We're not ready to go there yet, so they're kicking the can down the road. But I think what this does is it provides a bridge, and it provides a bridge in two ways. It's a graduation to what will possibly potentially one day be an all-electric power unit. But also from a cost perspective, you're not going to these teams and saying, look, you've been running this ultra-complex 1.6 liter V6 turbo hybrid, double hybrid system for seven years. We're going to blow that up and start over. It's going to be an incremental change, which is fundamentally, it's probably still going to be a low displacement V6. It's still going to be turbo, but we're probably going to make a switch where we're probably going to abandon some of the complexity around the hybrid system. We're probably going to lean more into the kinetic power production. We're probably going to change mm -hmm. the ratio of where that power is coming from in terms of the internal combustion engine versus the electrical system. So we're probably going to lean more heavily into the sole electrical unit that's going to still be there. And then we're also probably going to start leaning into a mix or a complete switch to e-fuels, to synthetic fuels. So at least Formula One could say, hey, we've increased our dependence on electricity. We're now all in on e-fuels and synthetic fuels. But ultimately, it's more of an incremental graduated step towards something bigger down the road. And the other thing that's probably appealing to the teams is one, at least some of the infrastructure is already there. We don't have to blow up all of our production facilities. We don't have to start from scratch. We're already partway along that journey. But for teams like Audi and Porsche, who were in attendance at the meetings that you were speaking to, and I shouldn't say teams, that's getting ahead of myself, but for manufacturers like Audi and Porsche that were in attendance, this is a concept that they're familiar with. And I think a lot of our listeners know it's understood that Porsche had developed a fully functioning V6 turbo hybrid Formula One engine a number of years ago, and they had it on the bench because they wanted to get a better sense of what it was going to cost to develop this type of engine. Whatever's going to come out of this is going to be in the spirit of ensuring that all of those teams that are producing power units today are committed to doing so into the future, but also that they can appeal to manufacturers that aren't. Honda, Honda's departure was a huge blow to Formula One. Not only do they want to make sure mm -hmm. that that never happens again and that Renault stays committed and that Red Bull stays committed and Mercedes stays committed, et cetera, they also want to continue to appeal to new manufacturers. And if they went all in on some sort of new V10 all synthetic turbo system, it's not going to appeal. But I think if you can build off of the current known formula, I think that's a good thing. And ultimately, if you can appeal to the manufacturers that are producing engines now and perhaps bring a new one in, and I think the hope is that you're going to eventually be able to appeal to the VW group and bring them into the Formula One fold. That's a good thing, but I'm very, very, very excited. And I think it achieves a couple of things. One, it's that incremental step to something fully electric in the future. It helps you integrate synthetic fuels. It helps reduce the complexity because so much of the complexity of the current formula is around the MGUH, which basically is capturing all that wasted heat energy. That's a good news story. I think this is very, mm -hmm. very, very, very good. And I can't wait to hear more about how this plays out. Yeah, exactly. And this gets a really, really uh, very complicated and very detailed. So you uh, nailed it uh, completely. So the MGU, which is Motor Generator Unit H, uh, stands for uh, heat. K stands for kinetic. So basically H, uh, it takes all the exhaust, uh, the excess exhaust uh, gases from the engine. That feeds the power back into the energy store, which then can be used to power the, uh, the turbocharger's compressor. So the MGUK, the kinetic, takes all the waste energy from the decelerating wheels back into the energy store for later use. So basically, I think what Total Wolf uh, was saying, or what, what basically what uh, I, I think is out there right now, is that there might be some sort of push to maybe get rid of that MGUH and focus more on the kinetic part of it. So it is very 
very fascinating. It's a, a topic that I find a little bit kind of confusing at times because it, it's very, very specialized. It's very, very detailed knowledge, but it is fascinating to see where they're kind of going with them. And uh, total, especially what uh, he was saying is that he, he he thinks that for the for the newer fans, especially that demographic and the sort of the 15 to 35 year old. So I guess maybe your millennial age group uh, that uh, they, they find that uh, very interesting and like the innovation and then I guess the knockoff technology and then that applications, the spinoff and all to the road fleets and things like that. So it, um, I, I think it's fascinating. I'm really looking forward to see where this is going to go. And hopefully by the time that they come out with these new regs and everything, I'm hoping at least by then I'll have figured out what the current engine specs and our current regs are. And then I can get down to learning what the new ones are going to be post 2025. All right. Well, Mark, I don't know. Uh, what are we looking for now? I, I think that we're getting pretty close to the end of the show now. I really don't have anything else uh, to add. Like I was saying uh, earlier, it's better late uh, than never. And I guess uh, at least for making up uh, coming in for you know missing last night, at least we got some breaking news in there today. So I think that's uh, great. Glad to be back. Glad that everybody uh, joined us uh, tonight. Uh, as usual, special shout out to, to all of you that uh, joined in on the live chat on the YouTube uh, live stream. Uh, and thank you all for uh, downloading the podcast and listening to it or watching the the youtube uh, later on and that's it that is a wrap uh, for us and if you want to get in touch with us by all means uh, do so easiest way is to send us a, an email at scooteryf1pod at gmail.com or if you uh, twitter's your thing get on the twitters at scooteryf1pod and uh, there you'll likely find mr hamilton who also does a wonderful job hosting the twitter spaces and uh, i know that uh, you're having a lot of fun with that i i gotta make a, an effort to come out I, i'm like that mysterious guy that never gets involved but um, maybe I'll do that next time. Anyways, guys, on behalf of myself and Mr. Mark Hamilton, have a great week. We'll talk to you again in a couple of days. Bye for now.